All right, it's good to see everybody. I know you guys are fired up about the word. You always are. Uh, so turn to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. We've preached uh, several sermons on the subject of faith here recently, and I want to continue speaking uh, on the subject of faith. And this morning I want to talk to you about a different kind of faith, a different kind of faith. So you can turn to Hebrews 11, and I'm going to read a lot of verses in Hebrews 11, but I'm never going to leave that chapter. Isn't that exciting? All right. So we'll hang out in there. And uh, so once you get to Hebrews 11... Just hold, hold it there. We'll start reading here in a minute. But let's, won't you just join with me? Let's all pray together over this word this morning. Father, we thank you so much. I thank you, God, for this, this group of people. Lord, for the people that, uh, that have been a part of this church for a long time. But Lord, everyone, I believe, Lord, if they don't know you, God, that you're speaking to their hearts. And Lord, there are people even that are a part of the broader church. And so I just thank you for each one of them. And I bless them this morning. And I pray, Father, that your word would go forth in power. I believe, God, that you're going to speak to us this morning. God, open our hearts to what you would have to say and teach us what faith, what faith is really all about. And I pray, Jesus, that when all this is said and done, we would have a clearer image of who you are and that it would change us to make us more like you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So listen, usually when we talk about faith, and even if you were here last week when we talked about faith, we talked about the kind of faith that just made Jesus marvel, that made Jesus say, wow, I cannot even believe that this person is believing for something that crazy. And usually when we talk about faith, we talk about faith that moves mountains, that raises the dead, stuff, stuff that happens that's almost just on a miraculous level. Faith, when we talk about it, usually we're talking about something where we begin to believe for God to do something that is impossible. And what it does is we, 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 it changes what's going on in the world around us now, in the here and now. And I don't know about you, but I want to have that kind of faith. I want myself, our church, and the people of God all over the world to have the kind of faith to believe for God to do miracles, to do the impossible in their life, and to just transform the world around them. Don't you want to have that kind of faith? Amen. But see, there's a different kind of faith. And if you read in Hebrews 11, it talks about faith. It's the, it's the chapter that they say is, is the, it's all about the heroes of faith. And it goes through this list of all of these heroes of faith in the Old Testament, people that believe God for amazing things, and it lists them. It even gives you a definition of faith. It says that, that faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. It says that we understand faith because we realize that God spoke the world into existence. That he spoke everything into existence before he even saw it. So he saw it in an image before he spoke it and it came into being. Because faith sees the unseen. And he goes on to say that without faith it is impossible to please God because he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we want to have that mountain moving kind of faith, that mir miraculous kind of faith. But see, I want to talk to you today about a different kind of faith. And here's where it starts in Hebrews chapter 11 verses 8 through 13. Let's look at a different kind. Now notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. It's speaking about Abraham and it says this. It says, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. 
By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised." Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now, if you read this, notice what it says, because it says that God promised Abraham a piece of land. And we know if we read Scripture that Abraham is the father of faith. Abraham is the guy that we look to because he's the guy that when God called him out and said, Abraham, you're going somewhere, I'm taking you somewhere, and I'm taking you to a promised land, a land that is beautiful, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, and even though you're about 100 years old and you've not yet had a child, through you all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed because I'm going to give you a child, and through your child the Christ, the Savior of the world, is going to come. And God gave Abraham those promises, and Abraham left not knowing where he was going. Because sometimes, I'm going to say this, matter of fact, every time when God calls you into a relationship with him, he's going to call you out and say, I've got something to show you. I've got a future for you. I have plans for you. But you're not always going to know exactly where you're going and you have to take a step by faith. Now the question is, did Abraham actually make it to the promised land? Did he make it to the promise that God had for his life? And the scripture says, yes, says he dwelt in the land of promise. That he made it to the promised land. He made it by faith and he made it his home. So I want you to pay attention to that because we're, we're, we're talking about faith and promises being fulfilled. And it goes on in verse 11 to talk about Sarah, right? God gives Sarah a promise. He says, Sarah, you're going to conceive and you're going to have a child even though you're past the age of childbearing. And, he, and it says that she judged him faithful who had promised. You know, when, when we're talking about faith, I love that story because both of them, they didn't always believe God, did they? They didn't always believe God. And in Romans, when it talks about them, it says that they did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. And I said, Lord, why are you right that they didn't waver? Why do you write that they didn't waver at the promise of God through unbelief? Matter of fact, one time you came to them and you said, Sarah, you're going to have a child. And Sarah laughed. And she just giggled. She was like, <laughs> and then God said, hey, why'd you laugh? And then everybody shuts up when God says that, you know. She's like, I ain't laughing. I ain't laughing. What are you talking about? And so she was, but the, the point is, is that she did doubt. She did struggle. Abraham struggled. Matter of fact, Sarah had Abraham sleep with her maidservant because he, she was trying to help God out. And they had a child named, right, she, named Ishmael through Hagar. And that was not God's plan. It was not the child of promise. But see, they were trying to help God out because they just didn't believe that he would come through. And I said, God, why did you say that they didn't waver at the promise of God through unbelief? And I felt like the Lord said this to me. He said, son, you can live a life of unbelief, but one moment of faith can erase an entire lifetime of unbelief. One moment of faith can erase an entire lifetime of unbelief. When all of a sudden you come into a place where you, where you finally decide, you know what, God, I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to believe you. And here's what you got to understand about both Abraham and Sarah is they both received the earthly promises. Abraham made it to the land that God promised him to get to. 
Sarah did conceive and did have a child and those promises were received. So why in the world in verse 13 does it say this? I want y'all to track with me. We're going to do a Bible study this morning. Is that cool? All right. So verse 13, notice what it says. If they receive the promises, why in the world in verse 13 does it say these all died in faith, not having received the promises, right? Not having received the promises. What does that mean? Because it goes on to say that they saw them afar off and were assured of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Isn't that interesting? They received the two promises that they talk about, but then it says, hey, these all died in faith not having received the promises. And then they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. They saw the promises afar off, right? And they embraced them. But they said, this is, not, this is not really our homeland. Now, so let's understand this for a minute. Let's understand Abraham. Abraham lived in what is modern-day Iraq, right? Probably not the greatest place to live. It was probably a lot cooler back in the day. I don't know. I've not been to Iraq myself. But he was, that's where he lived at, the, at, at that particular time. And God says, I'm calling you out from this place, and I'm going to show you a land. I'm going to bring you into a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And nothing happened instantly. God calls him out of Iraq. He's going into this land. Nothing happens instantly. And God begins to say to him, you know what? I'm going to take you on this journey of faith and I'm going to take you to the place that I've called you to go. Now, Abraham leaves and as he's leaving, it's a journey of faith. Nothing happens instantly and he's going along the way. And if you read the story of Abraham, he has some ups, he has some downs, he has some highs, he has some lows. Not everything goes wonderful. He believes God, but then he struggles believing God. And you see him building this relationship, amen? And he's building this relationship, and as this relationship is building, he leaves, and he's heading, headed toward this place, and God is beginning to develop something in him, and he's developing in him this long journey. And you've got to notice, God, he's believing God to bring him into this place and into this promise. And many of us, we're believing God right now. I'm believing God for things. I don't know about you. I'm saying, God, I'm looking for you to bring me into this place. I'm looking for you to bring me into this promise. I want you to do things in my life, in the here and now. I'm believing things in my family, for me and for my wife for our ministry, for our church, for my friends, for the people of God. God, I want to see your promises fulfilled. But now notice when he actually sees the promises fulfilled and he gets into the land, notice his attitude by the time the promise is actually fulfilled. Because it says that he dwelt there as a stranger in a foreign country. I want you to think about that. He gets the promise, and one translation says that he actually sojourned there, or he chose to stay temporarily. And really what he's saying is by the time he actually got to the promised land, he said, man, this is not my home. I thought this was going to be awesome, and this is a great place, God. But something has happened on this journey. You've done something in my heart, and now what I'm looking for is far different than what you promised in the beginning. Something's changed. Something in my heart has changed. Because when you first called me, man, I thought about that land and I thought, man, and if I ever get to that land, there's going to be riches there. There's going to be money there. There's going to be an abundance there. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And you get excited about that stuff, don't you? When we start to think about the promises of God, man, we get pumped. We say, oh, I can't wait till that happens. When that happens, life is going to be, it's going to be good. Then I'll just be able to sit back and rest and say, boys, I, I finally made it. Don't we believe that? Like how many of us right now, if only this would happen, man, everything would be all right. 
If only that would happen, everything would be just fine in my life. But then all of a sudden, Abraham finally gets to the promised land and he doesn't even build a house. He wanders in tents and he says, man, I, I must be a stranger. I must be, just be a pilgrim on this earth because I know you promised me this, God, and it's great, but it's still not what I'm looking for. It's still not the greatest promise that I'm still looking for. And see, when he, we, when he began that journey, he saw the riches, he saw the land, he saw the milk and honey flowing, and he saw the abundance. But in the journey, all of a sudden, in the relationship, he got to know God. He got to know God's nature. He got to know God's character. He saw God come through for him time after time again. He, he, he cried out to God when he doubted, when he feared. And God began to reveal himself to him as a loving God, a father who loved him, who was faithful to his promises. But all of a sudden he realized that there was something about this world, something about this life that totally kept us disconnected from ever being fully united to God. And he realized what I really want is Jesus. What I really want is you, God, in all of your fullness. I don't just want what you can give me. I want you and you alone. And I realize that it's not about the kingdom that I can build here through faith, but it's about the kingdom that you've already built me there. And I put my faith in that kingdom there because I know that at the end of the day, everything that I do here is great, God, and I want to see amazing things done here on this earth. But really what I'm pursuing is you, Jesus. Really what I'm pursuing is that eternal kingdom, that heavenly kingdom. And he confessed, I'm just a stranger. I'm just a pilgrim on this earth. Now, sometimes, you know, we want things very badly. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You ever get in that position? And here's the thing. We get into a position, sometimes I notice this even about Christians, is we want something so bad, and oftentimes it's a good thing, and we pray for it, and we ask for it, and when God doesn't give it to us, we actually begin to doubt whether or not God really loves us. Anybody amen me this morning? People do. They, maybe they won't come out and say it. But when God doesn't give them what they want when they want it, and I'm talking about natural things. I'm talking about better jobs, more money, better ministry even from a, from a spiritual perspective. And when it doesn't happen the way that we want it, we doubt whether even God's got our back, whether or not he really does have our best intentions in mind because we're focused on this right here. We're focused not so much on God himself. We're focused on what God can give us. Amen. And Abraham started out focused on that in particular. But then he gets to the promise and he says, is this really what I wanted? Have you ever wanted something so bad? And then when you finally got it, you thought to yourself, man, this isn't as good as I thought it was going to be. Anybody. People do that all the time. They want something so bad that it drives them crazy that they think about it. And then when they finally get it, they think, man, is this really what I was wanting? Donald tells the story all the time about how when he first started out in youth ministry, you know, he saw all these amazing youth ministers and they were preaching to, you know, different, different groups of people and, 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 and all these youth ministers that got to go places and preach places, they'd have like a hundred kids in their youth ministry, you know, you know so you could walk around at the, at the conference like this, you know, because you had a hundred kids in your youth ministry. And he saw that and he thought to himself, man, if I can just get a hundred kids in my youth ministry... And then when he finally got 100 kids in his youth ministry, it was so devastating because he felt no fulfillment. He felt no change. And he realized that wasn't the goal of life. That wasn't the goal of what God had for him. There was something that was far deeper. And on the journey, something changed in him. His, his shift began to change. And it says in verse 10, See, they waited for the city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, I want you to understand this. I want you to get this right when it comes to faith. Because right now, on this planet, right now, we have a job to do. Amen? 
And in the church, here's what happened historically, and you even hear people talk about this, especially like whenever, in, in the early 1900s, there was this big shift, and everything was all about the Lord's coming back, the Lord's coming back, get ready for the Lord to come back. And I've read story after story of people who decided they decided not to go to college because the Lord was coming back. They decided to quit jobs because the Lord was coming back. They decided to not press forward in a ministry. Why? Because the Lord was coming. It doesn't matter really about doing any of these things because the Lord's coming back, praise God. But see, Jesus said to occupy until he comes. Now, in, 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 a, in another group, it, it shifted. Now, in our generation, it has shifted. And honestly, in a lot of churches, you don't even hear a whole lot of sermons about the Lord coming back. People don't talk about that as much anymore. You know why? Because now they're shifted and they're focused on what you can do here. And here's what I'm going to say. I mean, you, you could say, well, Clay, which one is it? Should we focus on the Lord coming back or should we focus on what we're supposed to be doing here? And the answer is yes. Amen. We're supposed to be focused on the fact that the Lord is coming back and we better be ready. But at the same time, the way we usher in his return is doing his will on earth as it is in heaven in the here and now. And they're both and. You don't leave one off for the other. And some people have forgotten that the Lord's coming back because they're saying, we're just going to change the world, man. We're just going to change the world. Let me tell you something. We are here to change the world and make earth look as much like heaven as possible. But let us never forget that this is not our home. This is not where we end up at. This is not where we're going to live forever. We look to make this look like our home, but our home is a heavenly home. And no matter how good we make this look, no matter how good our lives are, no matter how much our faith shapes the things around us in this world, and we say, man, God has done amazing things in our life. It will never live up to the ultimate goal, the ultimate promise that God has for us. That is our eternal heavenly kingdom that is found in Christ Jesus. And see, there's something about it, man. You can see God do great things, but if you don't see God, you miss everything. And what happens is there's two, there's two kinds of faith. There is, there's a vertical faith, right, which has got to do with the eternal. And then there's a horizontal faith, and it's got to do with the temporal. It's got to do with, with here and now in the world right now. And you've got to have both. You've got you to live and, and have faith that's going to change things around you for the good. But you've got to have a faith that's pointing towards something beyond what you can even have in this world. And right now in our world, honestly, I think we probably focus far more on the horizontal. Because even if you just turn on the TV and listen to preachers, and most people, honestly, their, 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 their teaching and instruction either comes from the church that they go to or it comes from TV preachers. And usually, TV preachers are talking about things that you can get in the here and now. Okay? They're talking about money. They're talking about possessions. They're talking about believing God for things that you can get here now on the earth. And what it trains people to do when your primary faith is focused on the horizontal and the temporal, what it trains you to do is all of a sudden the function of Jesus, the function of God, the function of faith becomes to get you what you want on the earth. Amen. The kind of faith that Hebrews 11 is talking about is when you move beyond what you can get in this world that it becomes not all about that because you realize everything that I've ever wanted I actually cannot see with my natural eye. Somebody amen me on that. Everything in my heart that I'm longing to desire. See, the fact of the matter is, is you got a hole on the inside of you that you're longing for something. And you think, man, if I just have kids, if I just get a better job, if I could just get some financial security, if I just had more money, I would finally be fulfilled. And I'm telling you, God allows you to go through that so that you will realize that none of those things will ever fulfill you. And only Jesus can. 
See, there's a place where your faith moves from just the things that God can give you in the here and now, and it moves to realizing there's only one thing that's ever going to fulfill me, and that is Christ himself. And I may never see him in this life, but there's going to be a time when I do see him face to face and every longing in my heart is going to be fulfilled. And there's a faith that moves beyond. It moves to the vertical. And I love this because here's what it says in verse 13, 14. Let's read verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Do you confess that? Do you confess? You know what, man? I'm living in this world, but I'm really just a stranger here. I'm just sojourning. I'm just passing through because this is not my home. I'm trying to make it look like my home, but ultimately this is not my home. This is not what I'm living for. I remember, you know, especially as young people, because we got so many there, we want to we have kids, man. We want to get married. We want to get a good job. We want to be able to build a house. We want all these things. And I remember I used to have conversations with people in my early 20s, and, and I was one of those weird Christians. I've told you all that. I've just already settled into that. I was one of those weird Christians. I was ready for the Lord to come back, man. And somebody, well, Clay, you've got your whole life ahead of you. You could do so many great things. I said, what could I do that's greater than seeing Jesus? What could, now, now, don't get me wrong. I want, to say, I want to, God to use my... I have no control over when the Lord's coming back. If I had my preferences and the Lord said, Hey, Clay, right here's a button. If you push that button, I'll come back. You know what I'd do? <laughs> I'd have him back. The world's in poor shape, folks. I'd have him back. I still have... Even though the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of me, I have a fallen nature that I wrestle with. I've got flesh that I wrestle with. I have anxiety. I have worries. I have fears. I have doubts. I struggle as a pastor. There are things that I struggle with and I cannot wait for those burdens to be lifted. But then I hear a voice from God say, Son, let me tell you something. I'm going to come back, don't you worry, and I'm going to make you just like me. But while you are there, I've got work for you to do, and you be bold, you stay strong. Let me fill you with my spirit. Let me make the world around you look more like your home. See, he's saying that to us, but we've got to come into an understanding of this. And he says, again in verse 14, he says, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And surely if they'd called to mind that country from which they'd come out, they would have the opportunity to return. So it's like this. He's saying, you know, I moved to Barberville for a while. And I could, say, I could go to Barberville and be like, boys, I just, I just wish I was home. And they'd be like, well, Clay, if it's eating you up that much, buddy, just go back to Clay County. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about another homeland. He's not talking about just clay can area or the place where you feel most comfortable in earth because ultimately you're never going to feel as comfortable. When you get to know Jesus, and I'm going to tell you this right now. Some of you, you feel, when I speak this message, you have no idea what I'm talking about because without a deep relationship with Jesus, you still love this world more than you love that. See, your faith has not brought you into that position where you, you dream about it. You think, I'm telling you, when I get in difficult situations, I literally close my eyes and start to dream about being with Jesus. And one of the things that excites me the most, and if you know me, like my wife knows me, I've told y'all before, y'all know what my favorite thing to do is, right? Somebody? Nothing. That's exactly right. You got it. And I just imagine there's going to be these moments in heaven where I, where I feel the weight of everything lift and I'm just free in that. That there's no burden on me. There's no anything on me to, to perform or to make anything happen. And one of the things that appeals to me most about the heavenly kingdom is rest. You know what I'm talking about? Rest. 
No more worry. No more anxiety. No more pressure to perform. No more pressure to make things happen. Get things done. That perfect rest because everything's already been done. And Christ is saying, I want you to know. And when you, when you get into that conversation with God, all of a sudden he says, But Clay, what if you get in such a relationship with me where you start to live in that rest now? And it becomes a witness to the world around you. I said, well, that's a good idea, Lord. I'd like to be able to do that. And he says, I'll teach you. You can grow into this. You can grow into the heavenly kingdom here on earth now. But just remember, it'll never amount to what you'll actually see when you see him. And then it says in verse 16, it says, but now they desire a better, a better. That is a heavenly country. And I love this verse. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You ever wonder why God called himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He says that he was not ashamed to be called their God. Because when people looked at their lives... When the way they treated was the world, the world was, this world really has nothing for me. Ultimately, I'm living for another world. And he said, because their attitude toward the world was that, they held it very lightly and they looked to the hope of the future where they would have that heavenly kingdom. Because God saw that in there and he said, I'm not afraid to be called their God. I'm not ashamed of that. Because they've got an attitude towards this world that is the attitude that I want people to have. See, our, our, our focus, our, our primary focus has to be this way. Where we see heaven. Colossians 3 says, is if, if, you are, if you are indeed risen with Christ, he says, set your heart and your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Set your heart on heavenly things where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He says, because you are dead and your very life is hidden with Christ in God. I don't even fully know what that means, but here's what he's trying to say is, is that you think this is your life right here, what you see with your natural eyes and the job that you have and the family that you have and all this is your natural life and where you go to school and what you accomplish. He says, you think that's your life, but really all that stuff is going to fall away at the end and you're going to find out that your life was hidden with God in Christ. And when he appears, your life will be unveiled. And you'll realize this is what I've been searching for my entire life. This is what I've been longing for. But he's saying there's a kind of faith where you can begin to tap into that now. There's a kind of faith where you begin to realize that that's your life now. That I can begin to see past the scene and look into the invisible and see that. See, even in today's world, prosperity, we believe, is a good thing. But you know that the Bible teaches that you are not to seek prosperity. Everything is to be a byproduct. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything you have, have, need, have need of will be added unto you. Prosperity is a good thing. God wants to give good gifts to his children, but he will not give good gifts to his children at the expense of them missing the ultimate gift, which is him. There's a kind of faith that receives things from God, and there's a kind of faith that only wants God. Y'all hear me this morning. He is not going to give you good gifts at the expense of you missing the ultimate gift, which is God himself. See, a lot of times, even when we worship, even when we give, the way that we teach it, I notice this, is that we worship, sometimes they even get something in return. Man, if I worship, I'll, have it, I, I, I'll get something from God. And the way we teach giving, it's all, it's all, when I think about it, sometimes it makes me a little bit sick. But we love to quote the scriptures, give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, shall men give unto your bosom. And see, this is like how you teach a child though, because God has to teach us like children. Because ultimately, in order to get selfish people to give, you have to tell them if you give, you'll get something back. Don't you? 
But see, God is saying, I want your faith to go beyond that where I don't have to tell you you're going to get anything back. You give because you love and you want to see my kingdom advanced. He's saying, I'm trying to elevate your faith beyond, but i got to give you like, you know, uh, training wheels. So when I say give, i got to tell you, if you give, I pour out blessings on you. But that's not his ultimate goal for your heart. His ultimate goal for your heart is you're going to give because he asked you to do it and because you love him and you love his people and you love the advancement of his kingdom and you do it out of a pure heart with no motives, expecting nothing in return. He said, that's where I'm trying to grow you to. That's where I'm trying to grow you to and that's where your faith starts on one level, horizontal, where I give to get something back, but it moves to a vertical level because no longer am I storing up treasures on earth where it's all going to fade away, but I'm storing up treasures for myself in heaven. And he's saying, that's where I'm trying to move your faith to. Now notice, Hebrews 11, 23 through 27, notice what it says. We're talking about Moses now. He says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. And by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Now, I love this because Moses sees what Abraham saw, and that's why he went through everything that he did. Here's the thing that you've got to understand about Moses is Moses lived in Egypt in a time where all of Israel was in bondage and the king, Pharaoh, sends out an edict into the land. He says, look, I want you to kill every boy that's going to be born to the Israelites at the age of two or under. And they send this edict out and they're killing Israelite boys all over the place because there is a promise of a coming Savior, right? And, and, and so they want to kill them the same way they did in Jesus' time. They start wiping them out, but Moses' mom and dad Dad says, man, this child is beautiful. There's something about this baby. We can't allow this baby to die. So what did they do? They took a step of faith. They made, they made like this little bassinet or something, and they put Moses in this thing and threw him out into the Nile River. And all of a sudden, he comes up on shore, and Pharaoh's daughter picks Moses up out of the water, which is why his name is called Moses, because it means drawn out. And she, she drew him out of the river, called him Moses because she drew him out. And then she takes him in and he becomes the son of Pharaoh's daughter, which means he is the next in line to become Pharaoh. Now, let me tell you something. If this happens in our age, y'all just, just hang with me. I'm just thinking. But if this happens in our age, what would we say to Moses? Moses, son, you got it set up, bro. Everything worked out. Do you not see the providence of God in this? Do you not see God's hand at work in this thing? I mean, you, they put you in a, in, a, in a wicker basket or something like that, put you out in the Nile River where there's, it's torrents and it, you could have drowned or anything. There's crocodiles in that river. They would have loved to eat your baby flesh. But God moved you up onto shore and Pharaoh's daughter brought you in and now you're next in line to be Pharaoh. If you just wait it, man, the old man's got one foot in the grave. Let him pass away. You put the crown on your head and all you got to do is say, let my people go and they're all free and y'all can just start partying. You know what I'm saying? Don't rock the boat, Moses. Everything is going to work out. Don't rock the boat. Compromise. Compromise. 
Y'all know what I'm talking about this morning because everything in our world, even as Christians, we see all these good things happening and a lot of times it just shifts. You can have a little bit of compromise there. Just let a little bit of that go there. A little bit. Everything's going to work. Don't you see God at work in this? But see, the scripture says something different about Moses. Moses chose not to compromise. Instead, it says that he chose suffering with the people of God. He chose re- rejection. He left everything that he, was own, that he owned and he was ran out like a hunted man, went into the wilderness, lost everything, and he was then taking per- care of other people's sheep. Matter of fact, he, didn't, he had nothing. He had, he had a staff and a pair of sandals, and then God says, take your sandals off, Moses. Now all he got is a staff. I mean, he's got, it's like, okay, in our world today, we believe that if you got faith, man, you're blessed. Everything works out. Everything goes well. But let me tell you something about faith. Is faith is not so much about what you get externally. Faith is far more about what God changes you into internally. When we talk about faith, we talk about, I want to see miracles. I want to see God do amazing things. But you know, you can do miracles. Jesus even said that there will be many that prophesy in my name, that do miracles in my name, that see all these amazing things happen. They cast out devils in my name. But in the end, I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. What's more important, having the faith that does miracles or having the faith that knows God intimately? Moses Decides not to compromise. Verse 25 and 26, let me read it to you again just in case you missed it the first time. It says that he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. I know that some sin is enjoyable. I tried a whole lot of it back in the day. There were times even now when I look back at it, you say, you know what, I kind of enjoyed that. Except for the fact that I was empty and depressed and broken on the inside. There were moments when I enjoyed sin because there are pleasures to sin but guess what they always pass they always leave you more empty they always leave you more broken and God is saying what what would you rather have would you rather have the comfort and luxury of of you compromising with this world and becoming a friend of this world or would you rather choose to suffer affliction with the people of God and go through difficult times but have your heart pure and know me Moses said I ain't interested in this world I'm interested in knowing God and knowing the people of God. And notice what he says, that he, esteem, he esteems the reproach of Christ greater than the, than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Now, sometimes in our world, we don't have to deal with it as much. But see, he, he, he had this reward. And the scripture goes on to say that he, for, in verse 27, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. See, we talked about how faith sees the invisible. When you see the invisible, when you see the one who is invisible, you lose your mind. Y'all know what I'm talking about this morning? I remember when I first got saved and I first had a glimpse of Jesus, the invisible one. Man, I went crazy. Matter of fact, my mom's here this morning. Before I got saved, she knows I was a wild man, son. She was trying to keep me from getting drunk, getting high all the time, doing dumb stuff. She was. And then all of a sudden I get saved and I go so radically to the other side. And God, she was like, she was like Clay, I don't know what in the world's going on with you. One day you're like this. Next day you're some kind of crazy Christian fanatic. I don't know what in the world's going on with you. See, because I saw the invisible and I almost lost my mind. Matter of fact, out of the first two years, it took me a while to kind of calm down and come into, like I went into some super hyper legalism. I wasn't going to touch any kind of sin with a 10-foot pole. I was burning stuff that I owned. You know what I'm talking about? I was that kind of Christian. 
But the thing is, I was so coming out of darkness that I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want, and for me, it was good at that time. I, I couldn't have any compromise whatsoever. I've laid back a little bit more on some stuff. I'm not, as, I'm not as crazy as I used to be, you know. I was burning books and everything back in. Sometimes that's what you got to do, to be honest. Sometimes maybe you do need to burn some things. Just to say, God, I'm serious about where I'm moving to. I'm serious about moving forward. I don't want to just stay on the border. I don't just want to stay on the fence. But see, when you see the invisible, something changes in you. Something happens. And it says that he endured as seeing him who was invisible. Instead of taking the shortcut, Moses took the long path. He was 40 years in the wilderness. And see, we say this all the time, but God did not just want to bring Moses out of Egypt. God wanted to get Egypt out of Moses. And see, for you in your life, God is calling you into a place. And it's not just about getting you out of the place where you're at. It's about getting the place you were at out of you. He needs to change you. And he needs you to have faith to see past what you can have. Because listen, when you, when you start to believe God, he's going to call you to do things where you ain't going to have the money sometimes. I told somebody the other day, if you look at what I made the past seven years, I made $15,000 a year. And on paper, it looks ridiculous. On paper, it doesn't make sense. But let me ask you something. If you go back and look at my life, when have I ever been without? Not one time. See, it's not about what's on paper. It's not about putting your trust in what man or a job or anybody else can give you. It's about doing what God has asked you to do and believing that he will always be faithful. He will always come through on his promise. He will support you. He will provide for you. He will open the wilderness when there needs to be a way for you to go through. He will do what needs to be done if you can believe him. And see, the world only thinks in terms of financial security and money and jobs and resources and all of those things are wonderful and God will give us those things. You better believe that he will provide those things for us and he desires to and he will even use some of you to provide those things for other people because that's how God works. But there's something more important than all those things and that is doing the will of God and knowing him. And sometimes he will put you to the test just to see what you're willing to lay down to trust him for it. And I've noticed that God will pull things away from me on purpose just to see if I'll still trust him. There's a temptation, man. There's a compromise in this world, man. You know, I don't know if God's going to come through in that area for you. You better trust somebody else with this one. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Let's move on to the next, to the next issue. See, it's a hard issue. But notice in 11, chapter 11, verse 32 through 35. We're on the last leg here. It says, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith... Now notice this. It starts to say awesome things that these men did. Through faith they subdued kingdoms. They worked righteousness. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the violence of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness they were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Now those are not legitimate aliens, okay? That was a word that they used for foreigners back in the day. Women received their dead raised to life again. Now, that's some pretty amazing stuff, isn't it? Now, all of a sudden, right here in the midst of this, the tone switches. So you see these types of heroes of faith, they saw amazing things happen. Now, listen to this second set of the heroes of faith midway through 35. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. 
Look at verse 36. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. The prophet Isaiah, they decided they were going to kill him because he was prophesying stuff they didn't want to hear, even though if you read the book of Isaiah, there's a lot of good stuff involved there, but he was bringing judgment, uh, uh, pronouncing judgment upon them. You know what they did to him? They took a saw and they cut him right through the abdomen, sawed him in half. Somebody said to me the other day, let me, uh, let me just take a break here. You talk about ministry. I've had conversations with people here recently and they're like, you know, ministry in Clay County, Clay, it's just not, it's not that great, man. It's not going to be that great for you. It's not going to be that good. I said, in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, I was telling Andre about this this morning. I'm like, what's that got to do with anything? Since when does somebody called by God get to choose where they're going to do ministry? Is this, is this like a, is, is doing God's will like something that you get to choose how you do it, when you do it, and where you do it? No. You get called to a place. Imagine Isaiah getting ready to preach for God. And he's like, and they're like, you know, as far career-wise, Isaiah, I probably wouldn't go to Jerusalem. It's going to be a bad place for you to preach. Matter of fact, you might get sawn in half. I mean, it's like, okay, I probably won't apply for that job. But see, he didn't get to apply for the job because God sent him to do something. And when God sends you to do something, you are doing it in an adverse world, in a difficult sort of set of circumstances. Everything is not going to work out perfectly just because God asked you to do it. The question is, is when it gets difficult, will you continue to believe God and obey Him regardless of how difficult it gets? That's what real faith is because you're not looking for how good you can get it in this world. You're looking to press through by faith in Christ because you know there's a reward at the end that you cannot yet see. Let me tell you something, folks. My reward is not in this world. No matter what I get, no matter what I obtain, no matter how kind of, what kind of paycheck I can bring in, that is not my reward. Those things are fleeting. They, don't, they, they pass. They're not going to last. And it says that these men, right, they were chained in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute. You know what destitute means? It means that you are extremely poor without anything. And in today's world, we think if somebody's extremely poor, they just don't have faith. Afflicted, tormented. And then in verse 38, it says this, of whom the world was not worthy. I've not read a verse in the Bible that gives human beings such a compliment. Of whom the world was not worthy. He says these people were tortured, they were sawn in two, they lived destitute in sheepskins and goatskins, living throughout the earth. All these bad things were happening to them. It says, you know what? The world was not worthy of this kind of people. And then it says they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and in caves of the earth. So you see that there's two types of the heroes of faith. There, are, there is a hero of faith that they see kingdoms conquered. They see lives transformed. They see miracles happen. And there's another type of faith that as far as we can tell, they had no accomplishments whatsoever. They went through super difficult times, but no matter what they went through, they continued believing God and ultimately what they did is they moved into a position where they realized, you know what? No matter what I have or lose in this world, it's not about what I get here. It's about Jesus. And they all saw Jesus and they all pursued Jesus. And they said, you know what? You can take everything that this world has to offer me. Just give me Jesus. And they were completely content with that. And the scripture says this is the faith that Hebrews 11 is talking about. This is a different kind of faith, isn't it? It's a different kind of faith than what most people are preaching in today's world. And it goes on to say, 
You know, they they never really accomplished anything by worldly standards, but they all had one thing in common. And it says in verse 39, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. What is he saying? What's the point? What is the ultimate promise? See, in their journey, whatever it looked like, they got some promises fulfilled. But even David, man, after he set up Israel and conquered kingdoms and slayed giants, he still said, man, what I'm looking forward to is the day that Christ comes. And they were all looking for Jesus. Matter of fact, even Job, a man that got a book written after him, what does he say? He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and in the last day he shall stand upon my, on the earth and my eyes shall see him. Because even though I got a double portion at the end, that double portion is still nothing in comparison to seeing my Redeemer at the last day. Everything that they were seeing was pointing to something greater. See, Jesus is the fullness of the promise. Jesus is the kingdom of heaven. When he showed up on earth, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was he saying? He said, I am the kingdom of heaven. It's not just a place that you go to. It's a person that you know. Come on, somebody. Heaven is not just a place you go to. It's a person that you know. And hell is not just a place you go to. It is when you lack the knowledge of that person. You understand what I'm saying this morning? It's a little bit deeper than the way that we've looked at it before. And see... There's that one difference. He says, God having provided something better for us in verse 40, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. I'm going to finish right here in verse 12. You guys can, or chapter 12, you guys can come to the music. But it says, notice this. We're going to close right here. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, here's what he's saying. He's saying all these people we read about in the Scripture, he says, I want you to imagine it like this, that you are in an arena running a race of faith, a journey of faith, and all of these people that have passed on before you, they are sitting in this arena watching you, cheering you on, and we're running the race of life, passing the baton on to the next generation, finishing our race. And as they are running, and as they're surrounding us, these these heroes, one of the things you've got to understand is they're not heroes because of what they accomplished. They're heroes because they counted their accomplishments as nothing so that they might fully embrace Jesus. You, these heroes of faith are not heroes because of what they accomplished. They're heroes because they counted their accomplishments as nothing so that they might fully embrace Jesus. And they're watching us, and he says in light of that, he says there's two things you need to get rid of. First, you need to lay aside every weight. Every weight. What is a weight? In the Greek language, it means a bulk or an encumbrance. The idea is that you're running a race and you got like a 60-pound bag on your back that you're trying to carry and it's slowing you down from running the race. Now, this weight could be anything, couldn't it? This weight could be tradition. For some of you, I think probably in Clay County, the greatest weight that many of us carry is our religious mindsets. We're unwilling to come to the Scripture with an open mind and let God's Word tell us what truth is because we were taught something by somebody when we grew up in a certain denomination that told us this was the truth and everything else was wrong. You need to lay aside your tradition. You need to lay aside your mindset and your box of what God is or who He is to you 
And those need to be breaking off, broken off of your life. Because, I mean, I'm telling you, so many times we get people that come in, they come from different churches. The best person you can work with is somebody who didn't know anything, that never been to church at all. They come in, man, you preach the gospel, they get saved, they get filled with the Holy Spirit, their lives are transformed, and they have a pure heart. And then you get somebody that's been in church before and they won't come back to your church. Do you see that preacher up there? He had Chuck Taylor's on. That ain't no preacher. That's ridiculous. And I say that with as much kindness as I can. But man, it's difficult when you have those weights of religion that binds you because you've seen things for such a, in such a skewed way for so long. And you've got to lay aside those weights. You've got to lay aside. Man, some of you, you've got relationships with people that are destroying your life and people are dragging you down. You need to set those relationships aside. There are weights that you need to allow the Holy Spirit to show you these mindsets, these influences, these unhealthy habits that God's saying, this is hindering you. He also says you've got to lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us. In the Greek, it means that it skillfully surrounds you to prevent you from moving forward. So imagine running a race and then all of a sudden these people surround you and they're like, you ain't going no further. That's what sin does to us. That's what sin does to us. And many of us, we come, we, we come to God and God's doing something in our life and it's so difficult for us to leave that sin behind. But he's saying, man, it's time. There is a power in the Spirit of God that will enable you to lay aside that sin so that you can press forward and look to Jesus and finish the race that he has called you to finish and move forward. In verse 2, here's what it says. I love it. He says, looking unto Jesus... With your eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. See, Jesus has started a good work in you, and he is going to finish that work. He's the one who originated the faith in your heart, and he is perfecting that faith right now in your heart. And it says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Now, I want you to understand Jesus, because he, he pled with God about going to the cross. He sweat great drops of blood and said, God... It, Take this cross from me if it be your will. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And I believe while he was praying, he caught a vision. I believe he caught a vision of you and I, lost, blinded, living a life separated from God and in hell. And then all of a sudden, he had a different vision. And he saw you and I, clothed in white, around the throne of God, washed away from our, our sins, completely renewed, a new creation in Him, set free and praising God with overwhelming joy. And because of that joy that was set before Him, it says that He chose to endure the cross and despise the shame. And I'm telling you, God is giving you a vision of something far beyond, something far beyond, and it's really rooted in Him. It's a life with Him for eternity. And He's saying, you know what? You can go through anything for me if you just get a glimpse of that invisible. You're willing to endure the cross. You're willing to take up your own cross. You're willing to go through difficulty. Why? Because you've got a glimpse of the invisible and you're looking to Jesus and you're catching a glimpse of the heavenly realm. I want you to just close your eyes where you're at.